Good morning, everyone. Sorry for the biblical gymnastics I just asked you to go through there. Um, so nice to be with you this morning, and nice to be part of, um, really specially part of um, Sarah's membership. Uh, that was lovely just to witness and to me to be present for. Um, my name's David Smith. I work for the Evangelical Alliance. I'm married to Jude, who's a midwife, uh, though lately she's been vaccinating a lot of people. We have three children, uh, Maeve, who is coming eight, uh, Finn, who's about to turn six, and uh, Isaac, who is about to turn three. Uh, I live uh, near Hillsborough, where, where I grew up, and um, I've worked for EA for, for 10 years now. Um, I was a lawyer before that, and for the first eight years that I worked for EA, I was our public policy officer. So up the room at Stormont quite a bit, engaging with MLAs around public policy issues. For the last 18 months, it's been my privilege to lead our team here in Northern Ireland. And we have a brilliant team. Danielle is our public policy officer. Donna is our church and mission coordinator. Um, Dawn uh, heads up a, a campaign called Both Lives Matter and is also our office administrator. And um, we, as an organization, celebrate our 175th birthday this year. We're a membership organization. Uh, we're made up of churches like yours, of individuals and of organizations, charities like Scripture Union and Tear Fund uh, and, and many others. Um, we do two main things, unity and advocacy. And that's been in our DNA from our inception. In fact, in the 1860s, we sent a foreign ambassador for religious freedom to other countries around Europe to advocate for religious freedom, not just for evangelicals, but for Catholics, for Jews, for others, because religious freedom benefits the entire community. We produce resources to help the church, particularly at this moment in COVID, to navigate the challenges that we face. We also equip our members to speak into the public square and the media on issues like poverty, family, um, and life issues, debt, uh, the environment, reconciliation. And there's two key Bible passages that give shape to our work. One is Jesus' prayer in John 17, that his disciples would be one, and he prays for the church to come, that they would be known for their unity and their love for one another. And the second verse, which I want to springboard off today, is this in 1 Chronicles 12, 32. Um, the, and it references the men of Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. And, and that's what I want to pick up this morning as we sit in Belfast in Ireland in 2021. How might we understand the times we're living in? And how might we live well, bearing witness to Christ? So a preemptive apology, we're going to move at quite a pace this morning, we're going to go really wide, and then we're going to, jump between the, we're going to be jumping between the global and the local, the past and the future, before we land in the book of Amos and go a little deeper. So to stop it feeling like you're all blindfolded on a roller coaster, there's three key anchor points that are going to help us navigate this morning. So we're going to look at our present a story of here and now, this, this moment understanding the times. Our perspective, a story of our past and our future. And then our practices, and we're going to look at Amos as a prophetic voice to God's people and the nation. So we'll be returning to this slide a few times and hopefully it helps, helps us navigate what is to come. But first of all, our present, a story of the here and now. 
So just a few hundred years ago, most people didn't travel more than 10 or 20 miles from where they were born. They knew a few hundred people face to face over the course of their lifetime. Uh, education and literacy was quite limited and most people worked in some kind of physical labor or craft. They ate food growing locally and their diet of world events was pretty limited too. In fact, most of their life choices were limited. Today, I can wake up in Belfast and be in Cork or Bali by the end of the day, COVID regulations permitting. I can work from home, meeting people from across the globe on Zoom or social media. I can't buy milk from the farm across my road, across the road from me, but I can go to my local shop and buy bananas from Sri Lanka. More data was produced in 2017 and 2018 than in the 5,000 years previous. Every minute, 300 hours of video content is uploaded onto the internet. I have more choices than I know what to do with. Now, many of these choices are about personal taste and preference, but many should engage my conscience. Yet somehow it's easy to find myself increasingly numbed, dumbed, or indifferent when I scroll the news cycle and see the situation in Afghanistan, an Irish sea border, and Kim Kardashian side by side. I simply say all this to make a glaring understatement that in the past few hundred years, and indeed decades, we have lived through an age of rapid change, an age of unparalleled opportunity, but also of contradiction and confusion. Technology, consumerism, individualism, are profoundly affecting the shape of our humanity and our planet in ways that we're only just beginning to understand. Right now, though, over this past 18 months or so, the world has changed even more dramatically. And in many ways, it kind of feels like our world's being shaken. Some people have even called it an apocalypse. And I agree. Now, I don't mean literal cataclysmic end-of-the-world battles or theological dispensationalism. For now, at least, that remains to be seen. But I am talking about the original Greek meaning of the word apocalypse, an uncovering, a revealing, a laying bare, or a disclosing. I think it's fair to say we've seen the shaking of many foundations. You don't have to be a structural engineer to question the foundations of sand in the parable that Jesus told about the wise and the foolish builder. It's no surprise that when the rain came tumbling down, so did the foolish man's house. Who would make such an obvious mistake? But watch out, for the beauty and the peril of many of Jesus' parables is that just in the moment when we're about to condemn the fool, we recognize ourselves. And I can't help but think as I look around today that we've built much of our lives on sand this pandemic storm has uncovered the kindness of strangers and gold within our local communities. However, it's also compounded difficult circumstances for those who were already vulnerable. Children in the care system, women suffering from domestic violence, those living with profound disability, the elderly, hungry, poor, the lonely. Pre-existing inequalities around social justice, health and education have been highlighted and deepened. And globally, demonstrations about climate change and racial justice and Me Too are shaking old foundations. Locally, we saw violence on the streets again, a symptom which lays a bare, a deeper illness. 
The sticking plaster has fallen off, but the cancer continues to grow untreated, kicked down the political waiting list. So today, standing in wet sand knee-deep, it seems we have a choice to make. Sure, we can rebuild over the old ruins. We can continue to buy things we don't need with money we don't have. We can um, perpetuate systems locally and globally where the rich possess more and the poor less. We can keep building our sense of self around the politics of old battles or the identity politics of new culture wars. But what would it look like to rebuild on more solid ground? But before we move on too quickly, let's look a little closer to home again. What about the foundations of the church at this present moment? The Christian faith is growing globally. Praise God, people are still finding life in Jesus right now. There's some amazing stories of churches serving the least and the lost during COVID. But how do we assess the, the health of our churches? Is it growth in the numbers of people who come and the, and the programs we run? Is it the impact on our local community? All good things, but where's the clear distinctive between the approach of many churches and a purpose-driven startup? Consumerism and business models have crept into the church. A whole industry of ever-new Christian music and books, celebrity pastors and programs, and we're seeing the, shake, the shaking of the foundations here as well. Have you listened to the Mars Hill podcast on iTunes or seen the Hillsong documentary on iPlayer, Pray Away on Netflix, the child abuse scandals? The same idols are being exposed, money, sex and power. And some have valued charisma more than character, image over integrity, protecting the brand or the political power hold more than honouring their witness to Christ. This pandemic will most likely speed up the death of nominalism. While there are amazing stories, as I say, of people coming to faith, some will not return to their churches and will not sit on the pews that their families have sat in for hundreds of years. We're likely to see a church in places that is pruned, winnowed, a more humble church. Just before we move on from this present moment, what about even closer to home in the church in Northern Ireland? Geographical, we're caught between London and Dublin and we're a bit dislocated from both, like the strange cousin of a family member, like, sorry, excuse me, like the strange cousin of a family wedding, related but really different. We have the historical mindset of Ulster Protestantism, siege, suspicion, no surrender, defence. Don't estimate how deep that runs in our, in our communities and in the spiritual mindset of people today. The Catholic Church and the Anglican Church tend to operate in parishes of proximity. You go to your local church within an area, but increasingly evangelical churches operate around parishes of belief. And so many people travel past six churches to get to the one where they, where they have teachings that they agree with. And I, I say this simply to remind us that for now, at least, we still have the luxury of this, whereas believers in other parts of the world cannot, cannot do that. And yet, things are changing rapidly. A Western, secular, prevailing worldview is washing in. Northern Ireland is becoming more homogenous with any Western country. Globalised cultural fads and values are sweeping in. 
So even in Kawibaki or Castle Wellen this afternoon, you'll find a teenager connecting with the world through their iPhone, just like other kids in Australia or New York. The demographics here are shifting fast. Recent BBC RTE report found that 42% of over 50s go to church, and that drops to 10% of 18 to 24-year-olds. <clears throat> All this to summarise our present moment. Historically, we were ultra-religious, politically dividing people with deep roots and cultural traditions. The world is changing faster than ever before. So much good, but so many challenges. COVID-19, technology, consumerism, globalisation, climate change, individualism. We're increasingly secular, increasingly disconnected from place, and yet politically divided potentially more than ever. So that's our present moment, but how do we understand our present moment? Well, I'm suggesting we need perspective. I wouldn't start from here. You've heard the old story of an English tourist in deepest Ireland who stops a local to ask for directions to the small village nearby, and the local pauses for a moment and says, well, if it was myself, I wouldn't start from here. So maybe, as the old Irishman suggests, we shouldn't start from here from this moment, maybe we should start somewhere else. As human beings, we are storied creatures. We make sense of this strange moment by putting it in a context, a story of where we've come from and where we're going to. So how does the prevailing culture outside of the church understand our times? What is the bigger story that gives meaning to the world? Well, firstly, there's no God. Religion is a human-created relic from our primitive past, Human life is a cosmic fluke. Human beings have no objective or inherent value above a leaf or an ape or a squirrel. Any value or worth or purpose or dignity we have, we give to ourselves above the other creatures. Any sense of justice or compassion, morality, is again our own evolved invention. Richard Dawkins says it better than I can. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if at bottom there is no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. It's pretty bleak. But most people I know who profess to live outside the Christian story are not nihilistic. They don't actually live day to day like they really believe what Richard Dawkins outlines so starkly. Instead, there's a strong but vague hope that things are going to get better. And many people live in this space between the utter meaningless of everything and the myth of progress. So ultimately, there's a mood that individual choice reigns supreme. Truth is dead. You be you. But the future, ultimately, if we're looking past and we're looking to the future to, to make sense of this present moment, well, what, what is the story that we're living? Where is it going? The, the future is death. And, and this life is all there is. Now, there still remains some sort of notion of, of an afterlife where loved ones smile down on us, but it's little more than a cosmic comfort blanket. Very importantly, there's no ultimate moral judge or justice beyond this life, so, so eat, drink, and be merry. 
This makes the current obsession with human rights and equality interesting in the Western worldview. Calls for social justice, integrity in politics, climate action. Some of this is really good. And evidence that despite the scars of the fall, humanity still seeks justice and redemption. Still wants to put wrong things right. There's a deep desire for peaceful community. But it remains a utopian dream. There's ultimately a doomed attempt here to seek justice without acknowledging the judge. Redemption without repentance. As Mark Sayers would say, kingdom values without a king. Our society wants the fruit of Christianity while trying to poison the roots. I say all this to point out that in this way of seeing and being in the world, at bottom there's no overarching story which ends in redemption. There's no agreed moral framework. And if this is true, our deepest cries of lament right now about the injustices we see around us fall upon a silent and indifferent universe. And we can only pin our hopes on the best but limited efforts of this human endeavour. So what about for those of us who follow Jesus? What's our perspective? What's the bigger story that we find ourselves living in? And what's our hope for the world in this moment? Going back to the passages that we read and you patiently uh, (laughs) endeavoured with, in the beginning, God, four words in our language, but they shape everything else that follows. Not us, don't begin with us or our conception of God, but God. The story starts with him, and that's a radically different starting point than the current worldview around us. Christianity claims to be public truth, an unfolding story about the God who made the world, loves the world, and is rescuing the world, according to Tom Wright. Identity, we're we're made and given um, our our image, the Imago Dei, we're, we're given worth and value because we're made in the image of God. We're made for relationships with God. We're made for relationships with each other and with the planet and the world around us. And we're made with purpose, to live in these relationships and to steward and to co-rule together on this earth. We also have the concept of sin, the fall and its effect on identity and relationships, the roots of sickness and suffering and death. Sin fractures our human dignity and identity and it breaks our relationships with God, with each other and with the world around us. And so sin leads to idolatry and injustice. Idolatry, the displacement of God, and injustice, the displacement of people made in his image. The brokenness we see around us right now, and the sense that all is not right, rings true with an understanding of the world where things were deemed very good, but have now been broken. We are invited, though pursued, to be transformed from God's enemies to his family. And this is difficult for us to get our heads around, And so we don't miss it. Scripture uses many different images. So again, God is our father. We are brothers and sisters. We are both adopted and born again into the family of God in case we miss one of those images. And we're born in as children. As the church, our relationship with Jesus is best communicated through the living symbol of marriage. The not so subtle message that runs through the gospel from seeds in Genesis to the healing leaves of the tree of life in Revelation is that we are pursued by God to be transformed from his enemies into his family. 
At the heart of the gospel is this gift of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. This is the crux of where the Bible story and the cultural story meet. This is the moment where we can change perspective in this present moment. We can enter from a story of death into a story of life through Christ. That sense that we have right now, that despite all this good news, things are still not right. Well, that that rings true with the now but not yet of God's kingdom. Because ultimately, we believe that Jesus is returning in judgment to reign forever. And this provides the basis for repentance and for hope because one day there will be justice and accountability, justice and mercy meeting in Christ's rule upon the earth. We look forward to the day we read about in Revelation 21 when death will be no more and we believe that God is making all things new. So in the biblical story, love, truth and reality are revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Our lament in this moment falls upon the ears not of a blind and different universe but of a loving and just God. Hope and life and redemption are found in the kingdom of God and in his good plans for his people and his creation. What I've just covered are are simply a few of the orthodox claims of the Christian church. You'll find them in many creeds and catechisms yet they're hugely different from the worldview that I outlined just before. So think of any issue today, this present pandemic, poverty, gender, the environment, reconciliation. If if we start the conversation in this moment, then perhaps we're a bit like the lost Englishman. We find ourselves starting in the wrong place. It's important to understand the big story in which we are and in which we and the issue we're talking about find our meaning and hope. So we've looked at our present moment We've gone really wide. We've looked at our perspective. We've gone back and forward. And and the story that our culture is living in and the story that we as um, members of of the Church of Christ are living in at this moment. Our, Our quest this morning is somewhat prophetic, trying to understand these times and how we ought to live in them. Now, I don't claim to have a prophetic gifting, so for this final section... I'd like us to take up the somewhat uncomfortable company of Amos, an actual prophet, as we hopefully begin to land something out of the huge breadth of things that we've considered. Amos was a shepherd and a tender of fig trees. In his time, there was a lot of prosperity in Israel and the surrounding nations. And like today, this wealth was often concentrated in the hands of a few and came from the oppression of the poor. These injustices often led to idolatry, literally the worship of other gods, but also of money and sex and power. A culture of complacency and hypocrisy developed among many of God's people, paying lip service to the Lord and his commands, but failing to worship him in truth or to love their neighbours as they should. And into this context, Amos spoke his prophetic words of challenge both to the nations around and to the people of God. So what did Amos say in his uh, present moment, um, just as we look around at our present moment? So how did he describe his, his time and place? Well, here's just some of the, the challenges Amos brought against the nations around. And you can see 
For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. And it goes on to outline the judgment that God would bring upon the nations. And you can almost imagine the people of Israel cheering on Amos. Yeah, look at those awful heathen nations around us and the terrible sins that they've committed. Come on, God, bring your justice. But then Amos brings his words a little closer to home. And this is what he says um, about the people of Israel. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, deny justice to the oppressed, and so on. Look, look carefully. Money, sex, power, idolatry, injustice. These are at the root of the charges against both the nations and the people of the Lord. And as we've seen this morning already, things are not that different from today in many ways. The injustices are often quite similar, but the cries of the poor and oppressed fall upon the ears of a loving and just God. The cries of the poor in Amos' day did not fall on a blind and pitiless universe. They fell on the ears of a loving and just God. So how does Amos bring perspective? Well, chapter 9, um, I won't read all that, but I love how he draws out. He looks back and forward uh, and helps the, the Israelites do that. And so note the looking at the present moment, um, this shaking that we see um, in, in verse 9. For I will give you a command, I will shake the people of Israel, that sort of apocalypse uncovering shaking that is going on. But he looks back in verse 7, he reminds them, you are the people that I rescued out of Egypt. That's your story. That's who you are. And he looks forward in verse 15 to the day when the land will be restored and they will never be uprooted again. And so that's what Amos does. He, he, he contextualizes the moment by looking back and looking, looking forward. And he reminds the people of God that they are to live differently in light of their identity as people of the Lord. As we've seen this morning, it's vital that we let the story of the gospel in all its beauty grasp our hearts. Today, I'm, I'm, not invite, I'm not inviting or asking you to invite Jesus into your life. Rather, I'm asking you to take up his invitation to enter into his life in all its fullness. The gospel isn't something that we shrink down and put into our hearts. It's something that we walk into and absorbs our whole being. Almost there, but this is where um, sitting with Amos gets the most uncomfortable. I want to say that I'm aware there's lots in this talk that is focused on the challenges that we face, and I could have taken a completely different angle, could have looked around our world and drawing, drawing out all the amazing advances that we have today, the good and faithful witness of the church and the opportunities, and that is true, and there's definitely another talk in that. I'm an optimist, and that's where I'm drawn towards. But in seeking to understand this moment and how God's, God's people ought to live right now, I, I cannot escape or sidestep the sober message for the people of God, neither in Amos' time nor today. And you, so you can read there in, in chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, the strength of the language that Amos uses against God's people. People were worshipping with their lips, but not their hearts, and God hated it. Where today are their religious services and songs, festivals and sacrifices? 
but singing alongside idolatry, injustice and sin. Dare we ask ourselves? I want to say confidently, though, if not even prophetically, that repentance will be a mark of the faithful and fruitful church in the days ahead. How can I say that? Well, because it's always the way it's been. It's contained in the message of all the prophets and it was some of the first words that Jesus preached. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repentance has been at the heart of nearly every revival since. And though painful, this practice of repentance leads to restoration. Finally, and and here we end, uh, in, in the middle of the book of Amos, he lays out some very direct commands from the Lord. Now, I want to honor the specific context in the Bible in which these words were given to the people of God in that moment. However, in in humility and with great discernment, I wonder if we might hear the word of the Lord afresh in our own times. Maybe after all this complexity that we've looked looked at this morning, these straightforward commands just seem too obvious. But Maybe we need a clever strategy and and the latest technology to compete with the rapidly changing world around us right now. But but what if these commands are still transformative for the people of God and for the world around us? Very briefly, we are to seek good and love it. We are to hate evil and don't go looking for it. In order to do this, we need to understand what good and evil are by dwelling in God's word and letting his spirit dwell in us. The very act of loving good and and seeking it, hating evil and not looking for it, are prophetic acts of witness today in a culture where good is called evil and evil is called good, literally. So simple yet so challenging and so distinctive. And this ties into the, the next practice of faithful witness, maintaining justice in the courts. This is about the greatest commandment, about loving God and loving our neighbour and living in right relationship with both. As I said, idolatry being the the replacement or displacement of God and injustice, the replacement or displacement of our neighbour in right relationship. And we should be marked by a passion for justice, not because we're woke, but because we've been awakened by the Holy Spirit and because we're longing and working towards the day when the just judge of all the earth will rule and reign forever. Back to our initial questions, how might we understand the times and how ought we to live? Well, we're living in extraordinary times of change in this beautiful but broken world. Let's repent and walk humbly with God. Let's practice loving good and seeking it out. Let's practice hating evil and not looking for it. Let's pursue and maintain justice by guarding against idolatry and injustice. And finally, let's be confident of his story and our identity through his word and by his spirit. Thank you so much for your your patience and your willingness to journey on that roller coaster with me. Um, So good to be with you this morning, especially face to face. David, I'll hand back over to you.